Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to those of you who are watching from home. We're back once again with no special guests. We've got the Clackhorns on the front row. That's pretty special. Actually, we've got a couple of people who don't normally come. It's nice to see you. Welcome back. We've also got a growing tech team over there. I mean, if one, two, three of them. We're going to start expecting some pretty amazing technical feats from them if that number grows much further. Maybe we could have, you know, stage lights, sound effects. Fog machine. Fog, fog machine. I was once uh, teaching at a Bible school in Serbia. I used to do it every year. I did it for a number of years. And it was a very slim budget they ran on. Um, people there, administrative staff, paid a few hundred euros a month. Great place. Um, we went to visit a local church that was funded by a Western church and mission agency. They paid more in rent for a month for the building than the entire staff of the Bible school, and they had a fog machine. And you just wonder about priorities at times, don't you? Anyway, um, speaking of um, misplaced priorities and hevel and things like that, here we are in Ecclesiastes. So welcome back. Uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer. We're going to be reading... From chapter 9, verse 11 to chapter 10, verse 1. And then we'll see what um, we have to discover this evening. So, should we pray? And then we'll begin. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for one another, and for this time, and for your word, the Bible. Thank you for its insight, for your Spirit's wisdom as he unfolds to us the complexities of the world that we find ourselves in. And if there's one thing we've been discovering in recent weeks and months as we've been exploring this difficult and challenging book of Ecclesiastes, it's the complexity and bitter complexity at times of the world that we find ourselves in. So teach us to navigate that complexity, we pray. Teach us to navigate it with cheerfulness and joy, uh, with wisdom, and in a way that honours our Lord Jesus Christ and does good to his people, to those whom we know and love, to the bride of Christ here at All Saints and elsewhere. And through that we pray for the whole world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. I'm going to end at the, ver- at the end of chapter 10, verse 1. I'll explain why, because in some of your Bibles, that'll look like a strange decision, because if you've got an ESV, there looks like there's four lines of poetry, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, and I'm breaking the poem a quarter of the way through, uh, and it looks like you might expect me to go on a bit further or to stop before that. Truth is... Some of the lines before could be written out as poetry, and in some of your Bibles will be, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 9, and some of the lines afterwards could be written in poetry, verses 5 and 6. And you can see that in the parallelism of the phrases. Verse 17, uh, words of the wise heard in quiet, better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. You can see there's a kind of parallelism there. So in other words, don't be thrown by the fact that oh here's a poetic section really my reason for breaking it there is there's a thematic change between verse one and verse two and we'll see that also when we pick up next week lord willing in verse two 
this week, if we go as far as chapter 10, verse 1, we'll see that there is a coherent set of themes that this little section addresses, which I'll explain to you in a second. But let's read it first. Chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. All right. I pondered how to begin this evening. I was going to begin by uh, asking you to think about some particular aspects of your lives, but I think if I do that, it won't be obvious to you where we're going, and it might take 5 or 10 or 12 minutes to get back to the text, and you'll be confused for those 5 or 10 or 12 minutes. So let me first tell you, as briefly as I can, what I think this section I've just read is all about, and then we'll go to the kind of practical introductory question, which will show the relevance of this for us. I think you could summarise this passage, or the teaching of this passage, by saying, life seems random. Life seems random. To flesh it out a bit more, we might say, it is the tiny little things that change the course of your life, lives. It is the tiny little things that change the course of history. It is tiny little good things that save a massive catastrophic situation from disaster. It is the tiny little bad things that make what look like the perfect situation turn out terribly. It is the little tiny things that affect the course of history and affect the shape of your lives. And so, because it's very hard to predict and very hard to control little tiny things, life seems random. Conversely, if you think about it, if it was the case that it was always the big things, the well-defined things, the things within your control that dictated outcomes in your life, well, you have certain things under your control to a certain extent, but because it's the little tiny things that make bad things turn out okay or good, or 
good things turn out terribly. It's the tiny little things. Life is really way out of our control and life seems random. And you can see the shape of that in the overall picture of the passage. Chapter 9, verse 11. Who wins the race? Not the swift. Yeah? Who wins the battle? Not the strong. Who gets the bread? Not the wise. Who gets riches? Not intelligent. Who gets favor? Not those who know things. But what happens? End of verse 11. Time and chance. And then you've got a positive example with the man and the city. Do you see that? And then you've got a negative example with the fly and the ointment. Can you see the shape of the passage as a whole? That There's a kind of coherence to it, isn't there? If you see it in that way. There's, um, there's a famous paraphrase of verse 11 that some of you might know from George Orwell. Have you, hands up if you've read George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language. You've read that? You've heard of George Orwell. Everyone's like, I know George Orwell. He's out. Yeah. Uh, Politics in the English Language. He wrote an essay uh, by that title. And, and his point in, in making this comparison was somewhat different and more subtle. But what he did was to offer a... Uh, a translation of chapter 9, verse 11 into contemporary bad English. And his point is, this is how people in bureaucracies talk to each other. And, but it's become quite a well-known um, paraphrase. Here's chapter 9, verse 11 in Orwell's bad English paraphrase. Objective consideration of contemporary phenomena compels the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. That's Orwell's example of terrible bureaucratic English, and those of you who work for government agencies or big corporations will read that all the time. Please don't ever write it. Um, Orwell's point is, among other things, the Bible puts it so much better. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. Bread is not to the wise. Riches is not to the, are not to the intelligent. Favour doesn't go to those with knowledge. Time and chance happen to us all. Right, now, can you see the big picture of the text? You you can see why I suggest we should stop at the end of chapter 10, verse 1, because verse 2, you've now got the beginning of a series of contrasts between wise and fool, wise and fool, and that goes on really a number of verses. We'll get to that next week. So I think that's a kind of different subsection. Right, you with me in terms of the shape of the passage as a whole? Right, I want you to think about your life now. Think about how unbelievably improbable you are. (laughs) The evolutionists are wrong about almost everything, but they're right about this. You are, from a human perspective, an incredibly unlikely accident. Now, obviously... There's more to say than that. That's just looking at things from a materialist stance. And that's wrong for a thousand reasons. But it's even given our faith in the sovereignty of a, uh, the providence of a sovereign God who sees the end and plans the end from the beginning and who upholds everything. We believe that. But look at your life for a second, just on the human level, so to speak. 
consider how unbelievably unlikely you are. I'll give you a couple of examples. I, I know how some of you married couples met. I won't embarrass you by telling the story. You might want to tell us the story. Tell us later if you like. But just think how your life would be different if your wife or husband hadn't, when she wasn't yet your wife or husband, just gone back and had that, turned around and had a conversation again, gone and talked to you the second time. It's as though there's a fork in your path. And if you take the left, you get a completely different universe. Those of you who aren't married are are all children, some of you older than others, but just think how improbable you are. (laughs) Like, not only is it the case that your very existence depends on the fact that your parents met in the way they did, and their parents, and their parents, and how many generations do you want to go back? I mean, not being funny about it, but what if they decided to wait another month before trying for their for a child. I mean, it's just, um, it's hard to imagine. There there was a time when Nicole and I thought we'll just try for two children. Can you imagine the world without our third child? She can't. (laughs) Um, And we have these moments. Sometimes decisions that we make And sometimes things that happen to us that completely change the entire course of history. For us and for everybody else. And just think about those of you who are perhaps a bit older especially, and you look back over your life, and I think of things in my life, I think of people I met, uh, just chance conversations. I can still remember the one fragmentary conversation that pushed me personally over the edge into thinking, yeah, Christian education is a good idea for our children. And we therefore probably have to homeschool them. I'm trying to think how many words it was that Paul said. It was, it was like a dozen words. Something like, do you think somebody else could do a better job of raising your kids than Nicole? That's what he said slightly rocked me. (laughs) Or I think of the decisions that, it's not so much that I made, but decisions that have sort of happened to me in so many other times in my life. Your education, or which job you decided to take, or the countless other details of your lives. And now some of you think of... um, Wonderful things that have happened, providentially. Little t- and think of the slender threads upon which those events hang. And some of you, for the last minute or so, have been thinking about tragic circumstances and been thinking, if only, you know, if only he'd gone by train or plane and not by car. I remember when I was um, doing the video training thing for Texas driving licenses, and many of you have done this. Some of you have done, like, the 50-hour one. We had to do that. How long was it? Eight hours or something? 
six or eight hours. And, but they showed us this, this video segment of a young lad who'd been hit by, a, I think it was a drunk driver or a driver who'd been taking drugs. And it was just heartbreaking because, you know, he, he was, a, a, if I recall rightly, a keen sportsman and his, he was wanting to play football for his school team. And many of you will have seen that same footage of that lad whose life, and if he just stepped out of the door three seconds later, his life would have been a totally different course. You see similar things in, in the natural world, and I think our, our lives in this sense are a, a patterned on that. Rain that falls in South America, some rain falls on a ridge that runs up and down the spine, well, really on the west side, isn't it, of South America, and rain that falls an inch further that way ends up in the Pacific. And rain that falls an inch further that way ends up in the South Atlantic. And our lives are just this garden of forking paths, and a tiny deviation lands us in completely different circumstances. And it's all almost completely outside of our control. Because... Under the sun, the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the strong, and bread is not to the wise, and riches is not to the intelligent, and favour is not to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, are you starting to get the picture of what Solomon is talking about here? Yeah? Now, you can see how it fits into the overall picture of Ecclesiastes, can't you? You could summarise the book of Ecclesiastes, as we've done many times before, in the words of chapter 1, verse 2. Hevel of hevels, says the preacher. Everything is hevel. Everything is mist. Everything is uncontrollable. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But it's temporary. It's confusing. You can't see through the mist. And then you turn around and then look back and it's gone. Like the morning mist evaporating off the surface of a lake. So what's happening here? is that the preacher, Kohelet, Solomon, is delving a bit deeper into some of the mechanisms that lead to this. Why is it that life is so unpredictable? Why is it that life is so hard to keep control of? And one of the answers he gives is, it's because these tiny little things, tiny little decisions that are outside of anybody's capacity to control, Time and chance are so decisive. And so this passage is a meditation on the the positives, the poor wise man who saved a city, and the negatives, the little fly in the ointment. And perhaps we should spend a little time reflecting on those. I've got some thoughts on them, but let me pause for a second before we jump in any further. Any initial comments or initial reflections before we look in any of the detail here? Yeah, go on, Mrs. Fraser. Um, I don't. I have a Christian heritage quite a ways back, so I don't know where it began. Yeah. But yeah. Dick's sister tells the story of her great grandfather being sick in bed for for months, not being able to move, mm. and under his window was a street preacher. Right. And that's how he became a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And so we can see from that point on, you know, right. how that changed everybody's life. Right. And how, like, how bizarre that is. 
right? So, so somebody sneezed somewhere near one of your husband's distant ancestors, yeah. <laughs> which put him in bed. A sneeze, there we are, led to that covenant household. There we are, time and chance. It's interesting, isn't it? And I, I suspect if we went round and took our time over it, we could each come up with two, three, four things. You know, it would be how you met or... Um, how you decided to go take that job and what happened from that. Or, and you just went to move to the other side of Texas. Goodness gracious, changed the world. Um, so we could do that, but I'm going to resist the temptation. Any other um, initial observations? Yeah, Aaron, you got one from, for you or from uh, online contingent? Great. Is she talking about Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? She's talking about Proverbs. Proverbs. Um, do I think? Okay. D- d- did you all hear the question? Anybody know the answer? <laughs> Pastor Neil? Um, uh, I'm not sure. I, I think the book of Proverbs is a different beastie, really. And it does have a kind of internal structure to it, which is not apparent from the, la- the uh, somewhat disjointed nature of the Proverbs. Uh, but I think it is certainly true that the, the big point behind what you're saying, Nan, is certainly the case that uh, life looks different when you're looking at one little moment than it does when you're looking at the big picture. And it's striking, Pastor Neil highlighted this, and we noticed it in a previous session, that Solomon was probably quite old when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Life looks different when you're old than when you're young. And there's one specific example of this in verse 11, which I want to show you. It, it blew my mind when I realized what actually was going on here. Um, so, but we'll, we'll come to that. Yeah, thank you. Any other initial thoughts or comments? You see the big picture? You see the shape of the passage? You see the issue it's addressing? And remember, this happens now in a framework where Solomon is like, he's letting us into the secret. Okay? Just in case you didn't know, everybody... This is what the world is actually like. So this is supposed now to give us some tools for living more wisely. It's not just information. There must be some implications to the fact that life is made up of these tiny, impossible-to-predict chance events. Implications that are actionable. There must be something we can do that allows us to navigate those situations wisely. And we'll get to that. All right. All happy? Let me highlight one thing then that, and I mentioned this already, something that you might not have expected Solomon to say in verse 11. Just look with me uh, at the end of verse 11. He's got this, these five-fold aphoristic sayings the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the wise nor the race to the etc battle to the strong bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge but then notice two things what is it that happens time and something else chance yeah 
Now, that word chance appears in only one place elsewhere in the whole of the Bible. And amazingly, it's in the portion of the histories which is all focused on the work of Solomon. But it says something quite different. And I want to turn you back there and get you to figure out what is it that Solomon has discovered in the course of his life. Turn back with me to 1 Kings. And we're looking in... I forget, is it chapter 4, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 4? Speaking of um, Hevel, by the way, the printer stopped working about five minutes before Bible study. So I've got half my notes with me tonight. I feel like I'm landing a helicopter in the fog at night or something. Um, It's not... Anyway, but anyway, it's uh, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4. That's where it is. See if I can find some. Oh, there it is. I, I, made, I scribbled some notes down from my screen at four minutes to seven. So you don't need to keep a finger in Ecclesiastes. Just keep your mind on it. And notice. Pastor Neil, did you have a hand up, by the way, just a moment ago? Five. Well done. You know, he's fought this already. This guy's a legend. Thank you, sir. Um, 1 Kings 5, verse 4. Well, I'll read from verse 1 of 1 Kings 5. You've got the heading in your Bible. It's Solomon's preparation for building the temple. Now look at it. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, couldn't build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him. He's a man of blood, remember First Chronicles. Until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Now, the phrase translated misfortune, it's actually two words. You remember, don't you, Pastor Neil? It's chance evil. That's what it says. There is neither adversary nor chance evil. That's that's what Solomon says. Near the beginning of his reign... His father, David, has passed away, but he's ready to complete the grand project that David could never complete. The thing that David wanted to do, let me build a house for the Lord. Oh, no, I can't do that. I'm a man of blood. Nathan says that's a bad idea. shouldn't do that. Okay. Um, But Solomon gets to build the temple. And so he's communicating with his friend Hiram, and he's going to get some wood and stuff from him because Hiram grows great trees or something. And verse 4, the Lord has given me rest, shalom, from which the name Solomon comes, on every side. The land is at peace. Everything's fine. Everything is at rest. The final barrier that wasn't overcome in the days of David has now been overcome. There is no adversary, no enemies. And there is no chance, misfortune. There's no pegap, is the word. Pegap means chance. And so I can build a temple. That's young Solomon. And then you scroll forward towards the end of Solomon's life. And you think about 
Solomon himself in verse 11. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong, nor bread to the wise, Solomon, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Can you see what's changed in Solomon's perspective? What's changed in Solomon's view of the world in those, I don't know, three, four decades that have transpired during his, between 1 Kings 5? I can't believe Parson Neil just knew that reference. Like, God. <laughs> what kind of a guy carries the two Hebrew occurrences of peg up around in his head, ready to drop into a Bible study that somebody else has prepared? Man, that's awesome. What, what Solomon learned? How would you, how would you ex- explain that or articulate it? Go on, Uriah. Well, he's learned that time Right, right. Yeah. Very good. So it was, the question was too easy, wasn't it? Right? It, what Solomon learned, he used to think that there was no chance, or no evil chance anyway. This is a, a two-headed coin. However many times I flip it, I'm always going to win. You get chance, but not evil chance. But now he's learned that time and chance happen to everybody. So that, okay, it's obvious what Solomon's learned. Now here's the question. What are we supposed to learn from the fact that Solomon, King Solomon, wise King Solomon, had to learn that lesson throughout the 35 or 40 years between 1 Kings 5 and Ecclesiastes 10. What are we supposed to learn from that, Ecclesiastes 9? Go on. Yes, possibly. Yeah. Chance does happen, but even that's within God's control. What kind of man was Solomon regarded as in First Kings? Who said wise man? Yes, Miss Duke. Wise man. Just any old wise man? Yeah, the wisest of men. So why are we being shown that Solomon, that great wise man, used to think, oh, there's, there's no evil chance. There's no chance of evil. And it took him 40 years to learn that chance happens to everybody. Why are we being shown that Solomon took 40 years to learn that? Go on, Aaron. Right. Sounds to me like because it's not easy to learn. That, I think, is, well, at least one of the points. I think it's a major point. Pastor Neil, you got your hand up. Is it possible also when you render the word chance, I got as probability or probable? Yes. And the height and the depth and the breadth of wisdom yeah. is for Solomon to realize that he's not in control. So when the temple is being built, there is no chance of evil opposing it. 
there's no probability that either mm-hmm. would thwart God's purpose in building his temple. By the end of his life, the depth mm-hmm. of the of wisdom is such that, you know what, I'm not in charge. Yes, um, yes. Chance and whatever happens to everyone, and that means I, I didn't write the script. Yeah, exactly, and especially concerning the temple. Like, this temple, the glory of Israel, which lies at the heart of all the nations of the world, this temple where God will dwell. Hold on, will he? Will, can God even dwell on earth? You, you remember the hints of Solomon's uncertainty about the temple. I wonder if there's some of that in it. Let's come to that in a second, though. Sorry, go on. You going to add something else? No, let's come back to that in a second. I want to to think about the point that Aaron made and just interrogate that a bit further. Um, Now, there's a quote I'm struggling to remember by Richard Feynman. Um, uh, And I think it's something like... um, He's he's a great scientist, great physicist. Remember Richard Feynman? Some of you have read some of his books. Um, It's something like we've, we've... the difficulty is to make sure we're not fooled, and the easiest person to fool is yourself. It's something like that. He's a very great scientist. The easiest person to fool is yourself. And I wonder whether one of the reasons why we have this almost inbuilt, subtle character sketch of Solomon is we're seeing the wisest man in the world the wisest man who'd ever lived, taking 40 years to learn that time and chance happened to us all. Because it's so easy to think you're the exception. It's so easy to think, you know, this time it'll be different. It's so easy to think, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, other people, yeah, they've run into difficulties in the past, and I've read all the stories. Yeah, but this time it'll be different. This time. I, I think I've got it this time. I think I can control it this time. Yeah? And to, to see Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, just saying, there is no evil chance. No chance of evil. As a 40-year-old, about to embark on this spectacular building project at the beginning of his reign. Everything's sunshines every day. It's just fantastic. And then you get to him at the end of his life, yeah. or towards the end of his days, he's discovered that time and chance happen to everybody. And these tiny little things. You could be King Solomon, and you still can't shepherd the wind. Are you with me? And I, I urge you to... You are not the exception. I am not the exception. None of us are the exception. This isn't just something that happens to other people. This is something that happens to all of us. Time and chance. Positively and negatively. You with me? Let me pause there one second. I'm going to come to Pastor Neil's point about the temple again in a, in a moment because I think there's a lot there to think about. Any, any thoughts or comments on that? Am I making you all depressed or just confused? Confused is, confused I can live with, depressed probably is good, um, but ideally it would be neither. Any thoughts? Yeah, Mr. Robinson. 
Yeah. Yes. It seems incomprehensible given the sovereignty of God. What, how so? Just flesh it out for us. You mean the perspective that chance is so decisive in as well, sort of like even, even pondering Yeah. You know, if I if I got out of the car three seconds later I wouldn't have been, you know, hit by a right, right. or something like that, you know. That that's there's there's no point in even considering that. Right, right. And and there's so I was wondering about this and I'm not quite sure how to articulate it, but I think part of where I it's helpful to make a comment on that, is that there are problems with a kind of counterfactual view of history. So, you know, what, what if I hadn't gone back and had a chat with that guy at the, at the cinema who I later married and had several children with? You know, that, what, the what if is a counterfactual question. It's like, what if history had been different? And you can't do that kind of logically, just changing one bit of history but leaving everything else the same. You, know, you wouldn't be living in the same house. <laughs> Lots of other things would, would be different. And your reference to the butterfly effect is, um, is a chaos theory thing, isn't it? Some tiny, tiny, tiny event somewhere in the physical world can have a massive cascade of consequences physically and materially. So there's that. I guess the point about God's sovereignty, though, is really interesting because what this highlights for me is how unbelievably inscrutable God's sovereignty is. So, hands up if you've ever prayed for wisdom concerning a, a big decision you've had to make. Stick your hand in the air, right? You've all done, we've all done that? Well, what on earth you done that for? Because it was a big decision. So, great. Excellent. How do you know it was a big decision? How do you know it was bigger and more decisive than waiting three seconds before getting out of the car? Can you see what I mean? We, we have this instinct in our relationship with the sovereign Lord. We think, okay, God is sovereign over everything. Uh, and therefore, he's in control of all these outcomes and situations we're in and um, he knows what's best for us and he's got a plan for us we should pray for for wisdom uh, concerning all of the different decisions we have to make and particularly when we've got a big decision to make we should probably pray and it's at that point the particularly etc I want to put a question mark in the margin and say well hold on it's not that you shouldn't pray concerning that but why are we not in prayer concerning the tiny little things that we hardly notice? Maybe we are. I wonder how many times our Heavenly Father just catches us. 
there we are. <laughs> there you go again, just, just got you. And it makes me feel like if, if these tiny things that are beyond my control are so decisive, prayer is really the only recourse, isn't it? You know, so, so let me give you an example. Think of your, your working week. You have a certain number of big tasks to do. If I give you an illustration of mine, I've got a sermon to write, I've got a Bible study to prepare, I've got a series of meetings to have, I've got some emails to send, there's some practical things to do. There are some big things, and I devote a certain amount of time to those, because I think sermons don't write themselves, and these are a chunk of time, so I'm going to plan to do that. Well, yes, good. I'm going to pray about those things. Yes, good. But what about the tiny things that I don't even notice are happening? What if they are so much more decisive than I realise? Prayer suddenly becomes, it's the only handle we have on everything else. Isn't it? So I wonder if that's part of the picture. Um, um, Mrs. Rybelin, you've had your hand up patiently for a while. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And what that is, and all the things that go on with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, choosing the option, things like that. Yes. Is a job, should it be? Um, yeah. And so that's why we. Yeah, I think that might have something to do with it. Just, um, and then also, instead of, you know, kind of like a choose your own adventure book or something, it's like, this is such a big deal, but really all things are. So then. Maybe on the other side of it, instead of having to fret so much about a choice to make, maybe it should be more of a little bit just, I don't want to say not that we don't care about what happens, but just super grateful at everything that has happened. Right, right. And like understanding that everything was perfectly orchestrated hmm. for his glory. Yes. It doesn't matter if yeah. it's a bad thing. Quote a bad thing or a good thing, it was, it was, that is what happened. Right. Why are we arguing about it? Yeah, I think that there's a whole bunch of things in what you said, and there's a, there's a train of thought through, through the middle of it, which is the first thing that occurred to me when I was preparing this. It's when you say gratitude or being grateful, this astonishingly improbable life that we now have right now presented before us. And when you, when you stop and realise the staggering improbability of the events that needed to happen, even to make you exist at all, abstractly, the universe would get on fine without you. Yeah? And so what God has done is, like, I tell you, here's a bonus. I'll give you a life to live. There we are. Now, when you think of it like that, don't you feel more free to give yourself to serve him and to serve others? Because it's not like, this thing is mine, and I must guard it and protect it jealously, because it's all I've got. It's like, I have nothing. I, I could just as easily not have existed. Not at all. Like, if my parents had waited another couple of days, maybe somebody would have been born, but it wouldn't have been me. I don't know. It's, how do you even think about that? And so then, you think, well, I've got this inc- incredible gift. Like, if somebody comes along, and they gave you more money than you could ever spend in your entire life. And you can do whatever you like with it. And so you, obviously you can't just 
keep it all, spend it on yourself. Because like, you can't spend... Like, Elon Musk could never spend all his money. If he spent all of his time spending money, it's earning more interest than he could ever spend. So what would he do? What, what rich, wise people do is actually spend a l- more time thinking how to give large chunks of it away. Even people that you might not like particularly do that. So I'm going to give you $100 billion. What are you going to do? Actually, you'd think, this is what a wonderful opportunity. I have this. I could help this cause. I could help these people. I could do this. I could give to them. Well, you don't have money. Sorry. Well, maybe you do have some money. Maybe you don't have $100 billion, right? But you've got your entire life. And it's given to you in exactly the same way, with exactly the same moral and emotional freight. It's, there it is. It's not really yours. It's just handed to you. There we are. Now, what are you going to do with it? And I suggest what you do is give it away. With that kind of joyful abandonment to God's providence, which it makes sense of the the transition we looked at last week, doesn't it? When you've got all the gloom and doom of chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, all about death and moroseness. And so what does Solomon say? Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. God has approved what you do. Just dress cheerfully, white garments all on your head. Smile on your face. Enjoy life with your wife all the days of this crazy, vain life you've got. There's a kind of gay abandonment to the life you've been given. You... If you've been given $100 billion, you shouldn't worry about what to do with it, should you? You've been given how many years? I don't know. You shouldn't worry about what to do with it. Then you receive it with gratitude. And then you give it away, don't you? Because you could just as easily not have existed. So I'm not even sure whether that's the thrust of what you had in mind, KB, but, but the little fragment of what you were saying in the middle of that prompted that thought in me but I've missed other things you were saying were were there other things you want us to get back to right just the idea of chance and that yeah just the way that you think about chance I mean it doesn't help that there's a billion movies out there that change the past and all that and then it's like yeah 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 I think we're a little jaded when we think about chance yes yeah I think I think you're right and, it, and it's something that people struggle with. Sometimes they do in fiction, don't they? Uh, ha- like controlling events of history, uh, whether it's by changing the past, like in some movies, or like in Macbeth even, with the thing with the witches, and they tell... Um, how does it go? They tell Macbeth, or is it his wife? I forget. Is it, they tell Macbeth what's going to happen, and then he goes and tells his wife, and she says, right, okay, this is what I've got to bring about. It's like, no, don't do that, and it all goes horribly wrong, and all those things happen, and the tree's coming towards, what's a Dunblane, is it? I forget, yeah. I do remember some of this stuff from high school. It's a long, long time ago. Um, yeah, so people get in a tangle about that. So it's, it, what it really does, I think back to my charismatic days. I had some charismatic days. My, in not, not of, I was never really proper charismatic because I used to play the piano and if you're playing the piano you can't really get slain in the spirit because it's awfully noisy and I was never really persuaded by that stuff anyway they're just lovely people and I didn't yeah, I was a young Christian, I didn't know what I was doing 19, 18 years old anyway so I went to this church there was this obsession with trying to figure out what the will of God was so that you could walk in it oh my God. you look back and you just think what bonkers theology that is 
that's just balmy, isn't it? Because our lives are shaped by the tiniest of things. So, all right, let me, I'm going around and around in circles here. Pastor Neil's point, yes, sir, you, sir. The temple, let's just spend a minute or so on this, and then I want to get into the details of some of the two um, examples, the positive and negative example. Do you, yeah, okay. Yes. By the end of his life, he's saying time and chance happens to everyone. Whereas when he was a younger temple building guy, yeah, yeah. he was saying there is no chance at all that evil is going to thwart this. So what changed? Perhaps the perspective of wisdom. Yeah. That's the contrast. That, so Absolutely. Well, and I wonder is, is that not to be applied to the temple specifically? Right? So what we're saying is Solomon thought at the beginning of his life. When he's planning the temple, beginning of his reign, sorry, he's planning the temple, he thinks, this is it. This is going to be the place. No evil chance here. End of his life, he started to see some of the strains emerging, first in his own life, then among the people. Maybe even in his prayer at the dedication of the temple, he's got that hesitancy. Will God really dwell on earth? I mean, the highest heavens can't contain you. Maybe as he's growing older, what wisdom does is it sees the inadequacy of this earthly temple. I'm wondering if that's part of what's going on. So there's a Christological element here. Do you know what I mean by that? There's an element here that points us to Christ by pointing us to the inadequacy of the types of Christ that preceded him. Are you familiar with this terminology? We've talked like this before. A type of Christ is, is like a picture of Christ that came before him. A person like Boaz or Joseph or David or Solomon or a thing like Israel, community, or the temple or the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Or even, uh, in some cases, activities or events can be types of Christ. But Certainly the temple is a type of Christ because Jesus is said to tabernacle among us in John 1 and the tabernacle is like the forerunner of the temple. He is like the human temple. The temple he was speaking of was his body. Remember? So maybe Solomonic wisdom realizes the inadequacy of that earthly temple. And so in Ecclesiastes, he's clutching ahead for something that will do what that earthly temple could never do. So there what you've got is Ecclesiastes pointing forward to something it doesn't articulate. There will be a temple that fulfills Solomon's original hope. No evil chance here. Just like there will be work that's not in vain. It's just not in Ecclesiastes there won't be. There will be in 1 Corinthians 15.58. Remember last week, or two weeks ago? Your labour is not in vain. Ecclesiastes is under the sun. Ecclesiastes is before Christ. It's about life without resurrection. Kind of. It's like life without resurrection. It's, it's life lived under the shadow of death. And so it, it points us forward in those kinds of ways. 
Happy with that? Want to tweak that? Hmm. You're tweakless. I just want to say how impressed I am that you just knew that Hebrew reference. Mind blown. Um, head explodey emoji. Okay. All right. So, should we move on? I want to spend a few minutes looking at these individual examples. And I think these are given to call attention to a contrast between wisdom and folly, which is then going to be developed in what follows. Because notice it's the wisdom of the man and the dead flies in the ointment in 10.1 are like folly. Can you see? And this is perhaps another practical outworking of what we're reading here. Let me cut to the chase so that you've got it ahead of time. Um, Tiny events can have huge positive consequences or huge negative consequences. That's a bit worrying, correct? Because it means your life is unpredictable. Is there any way that you could tilt yourself more towards there being tiny things that have positive consequences? Because it would be quite nice to have those. Lots of happy accidents. Accidents. Wouldn't that be good? If you could just filter out all of the, the... chance events that were bad chance events and just have chance events like the one where you met your husband or just chance events where the, like the one where you got born or just chance events like the one where you landed that job that you love or that you met that person that you really get on with. Just those chance events. Wouldn't that be great? What could you do? Well, it turns out there, is, there might be something because it is wisdom that has the chance positive effect this man and the city and it's folly which is like dead flies in the ointment so if there was some way of cultivating wisdom getting rid of folly that'd be kind of handy wouldn't it we'd be positioning ourselves so that it's not we're not guaranteed everything's going to go well but we're more likely not to make a total pig's breakfast of everything you with me you're making yourself anti-fragile a little bit being able to benefit from these quote-unquote chance events rather than being harmed by them. So let's, let's look at verse um, 13 to 18 first. This is the... When a chance, quote-unquote, event turns out well, I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun. It seemed great to me. And now just pause a second. That's something, isn't it? Because most of the things that Solomon says, when he evaluates them, he says, this seemed like a bad thing. This seemed evil. This seemed hevel. This seemed vain. This seemed great. There was this little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Notice the contrasts. What's the city like? Little, few. It says city. If I recall, Pastor Neil will know, the, the Hebrew word is ir, which means it can, can mean town or city. It's not necessarily huge in size. It could be a small one. You remember? I don't remember. Sorry. Um, uh, in other words, don't think city means massive. It doesn't mean like Fort Worth. It could mean, you know, like just the, the square in the middle of Granbury or something. You know, really tiny. Oh. And a great king comes against it. Great siege works. So you've got this huge contrast. What's going to happen to this tiny little puny city with hardly anybody living there? Obviously, it's going to be flattened. But 
there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. And Solomon didn't say how. Maybe it's like, there's an episode in 2 Kings 20, but that's a woman, isn't it? Not a man. Um, so that's odd. If that's what Solomon has in mind, I'm not sure. I think it might be either a general observation or it might be more likely it's a, a reference to a historical event that we don't know about I, unless there's something that I'm overlooking in scripture where the, this could be the description of I can't think of it oh unless it's of course the um, uh, a way of talking about the, the city of God and the, the poor wise man who by his wisdom 1 Corinthians 1 delivered the city from the evil that was besieging it. In other words, the poor but wise uh, carpenter's adopted son who, whose wisdom brought low the wisdom of the wise through a gospel that pronounced the, the declared weakness and not strength and declared that he would die in order to be victorious. Maybe that, it might be another one of those forward-looking images of Christ's work. But the, the narrative describes it just as a poor wise man who delivered the city by his wisdom. Nobody knows how. And end of verse 15, no one remembered that poor man. I don't know what that's supposed to evoke. Maybe it's supposed to evoke a sense of pity or injustice. Or maybe it's just supposed to intensify the sense of, this guy must have been a real nobody. <laughs> really poor. Nobody remembered him. He just saved the city. And then Solomon generalizes the point. Can you see in verse 16? But I say, and this is like, this is the moral that he draws from his remembrance of this episode. Wisdom is better than might or strength or power. Even though this poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Nobody, the, 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 the suggestion there is not his words weren't heard at the time, but his words are not passed on. They're not heard in the sense that they're being passed on, I think. That's what it's supposed to communicate. So this guy basically had some really wise advice, saved the city, but nobody remembered the wise advice. Nobody remembered him. Nobody even knows his name because his name isn't told to us. He's, he's a nobody. Who's the least significant person in the city? Oh, this guy. Who saved the city? Uh, yeah, him. And he did so through wisdom. So it's an example... I think, of a small... Is she okay? Yeah. yeah just go and chew that pen, that's fine. Um, of a small person, in this case, changing the course of a city's history. Mordecai? Hmm. It's tempting to think that. Although, I mean, the, the, that's not one of which Solomon would have been aware. Yeah, the timing's wrong. But, but it's 
No, in, yeah, saving the cities of the Philistines. And, yes. I, I wonder whether the, the anonymity and the, the vagueness is deliberate. The anonymity makes the guy look even less significant. And the vagueness makes it more general, which is how Solomon wants to direct it. He wants, he, he wants you to know in the broadest possible terms that you could be a nobody who never writes a book, never preaches a sermon, never has a blog, never even has a Facebook page. Wow, you really are a nobody. But you just say something one time that saves a whole community of people. And nobody even remembers what it was you said or that it was you who said it or what your name was. And you'll only be able to do that if you're wise. So you, can you start to see now that oh, there are some actionable implications of this, right? Because wisdom can be used by God to change the course of history, you might never know that you're doing it. Other people might not acknowledge that you've done it. What you could do is just cultivate wisdom. So that unbeknownst to you, the Lord uses you in marvellous ways to do wonderful things. You have no idea how the Lord could already have used your words. My friend Paul, who I talked talk, talk about earlier, the one who challenged me about Christianly educating our children, he didn't know the impact his words had had until I told him subsequently. If I'd never told him, he would never have known. It just kind of changed the entire course of my family's life and children's lives and Lord willing, their children's lives. I mean, let me be honest, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have got a job here as a pastor if I hadn't given my children a Christian education. Well, there's a pretty big change to our lives for a start. Can you, that's one guy. So what do you want to do? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? You are this um, truckload of fireworks ready to explode wonderful goodness into people's lives. You might not even know you've exploded. But only if you have wisdom. So does that make it worth cultivating a, all the things that wisdom involves? And maybe we do need to look at the book of Proverbs, Uriah, to, and um, Nan asking her question. We should look at, uh, sorry, not Uriah, it was Nan, wasn't it? It mentioned Proverbs. We should, we, maybe we should, to, um, to get in our heads what wisdom really is. But yeah, um, Mr. Bennett. This, this little vignette pushes me to think beyond me, because mm. the poor man's still poor. Yes. Nobody remembers him. Yeah. It's not for him that this... I mean, yeah, he gets to live in the city instead of being flattened by everybody else. But yes. the real benefit is for those around him. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's not, he's not... He's not thanked or rewarded. Or, and so, if we, yeah, that's a really helpful point, isn't it? We, we map that onto ourselves. We think, you know, don't expect people to thank you. I mean, they might do, and it would be good if they did. But don't, don't worry, don't be surprised. If we could just go, go around, not being busybodies, but just oozing wisdom here and there.
Who knows the good that we might accidentally do? Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite verse in the Bible. Judges. No, no, but it's interesting. So you all know about Shamgar, yeah? The greatest of the judges. Well, he's not really. Judges 3.31. After him was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. And the point, just to cut to the chase, is that Shamgar is probably not a Hebrew certainly not appointed officially as a judge. It might even be that Shamgar wasn't his name because Sham is a bit like Shem. It's not a Hebrew name. It might be that it, Sham is like Shem, which means name, and Gur is like Ger or Gar, which means foreigner. So it could be Shamgar means foreign guy in Hebrew. They didn't know his name because they couldn't pronounce it. So he's literally a nobody in Israel. He just, yeah, he also saved Israel. 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Yeah, that's why I love the guy. He's just an ordinary bloke who does his job and saves the nation. Yeah, he is a bit like Shamgar. That's it. It must be all about Shamgar. I found a reference to Shamgar somewhere in the Bible that's not in Hebrews 11. Anyway, all right. Um, In fact, he's not even mentioned there. Is he? No, he's not. Um, Then finally, let's look at... um, the, the flies in the ointment. I mean, and this is another one of those moments where, uh, what is it you say? My friend Glenn Scrivener has a fantastic, he's an evangelist in Britain, and um, he's got a bunch of amazing videos, including one which highlights all the different ways in which King James English has shaped, the King James, sorry, has shaped the English language, and even the American language. And so the, the phrase, fly in the ointment, is that, that is a saying over here, right, good, I'm making sure. And the fly in the ointment means, like, there's one little thing that makes something beautiful go sour. Like a little drop of sour milk in a carton of pure milk will make all the rest of the milk go off by morning. Which is why you don't decant. You know, oh, I've only got a little bit left. I'll just pour this into the new... No, don't do that. Because you just make it all as bad as the worst, oldest milk that you've got there. So chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. So there's... Here, notice, this is the flip side of the, um, the positive wisdom point got here in the previous vignette a lovely lovely word from mr bennett um uh you could be really wise really really wise and a tiny bit of folly could ruin everything does that remind you of anybody every tragic hero out of shakespeare yeah every tragic hero out of shakespeare does it remind you of anybody it's sorry abby david david Solomon, right, the guy who wrote this. Talk about bitter autobiography. Uh, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, that, that'll do it. That'll ruin everything. Everything. Like literally everything it will ruin. Not because they're foreign, but because they 
uh, worship other gods, obviously. And because there are many of them. So there he is. Wiser, old Solomon, looking back and thinking, yikes. A little folly is like the fly in the ointment. And you know how this would work in in concrete terms. A little fly would go mouldy and make the ointment, which would be some kind of scented oil, um, just smell like rotten. It wouldn't have preservatives in it like modern perfumes. And so if it became impure, it would just go off really badly. It's like with, um, if you ever make uh, jelly or... uh, uh, preserves out of fruit if you keep it pure you, don't, you keep the lid on and it's sealed properly it'll last rages right but as soon as one of your sons dips a, a, a buttery crummy knife in and scoops out a big thwing and dollops it on their toast and there's all the gunge in there then the gunge is the place where the mold starts and it ruins everything has ever happened in your household really <laughs> yeah a few times yeah the, the, maybe the the jelly doesn't last long enough for it to go off, right? It's just the best way to deal with mould, just to eat it before it gets mouldy. But that's, that's how things work, right? Um, although ointment, of course, um, connected as it is with oil, has a whole range of symbolic resonances in Scripture, doesn't it? Where do you find ointment, and especially oil, in scripture. Go on, Anne. You've been quiet for the last hour or so. Go on. <laughs> right? Yeah, or with nard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Anywhere else? Pastor Neil's smiling. Imagery of oil or ointment. Yeah, Buck. Very good. Oil in the tabernacle with the lampstand. Anointing the priests, yeah, Abby's and kings and prophets as well. Um, pick up on Buck your point. That's a good place to start. Oh, we got another hand up somewhere. Oh, still on oil. Yeah, I want to. This oil. We're not finished with the oil yet. We got. Yeah, yeah. Or very good. Oil is used frequently in places. Holy places, holy people, yeah, priests and Messiah, uh, kings and prophets, people set apart for that kind of holy service. The reason is because many of those images terminate in imagery of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the anointing with which or with whom Jesus is anointed as the priest and king and prophet. In the temple, you had... A lampstand that looks like a tree burning with oil, fire. At Pentecost, you've got people who are like trees because of Psalm 1 and other places burning with the Spirit poured on them. Incidentally, people and trees, you've heard me say before, that's why, partly why, when the guy who's born blind, no, born blind, the guy who is blind is healed by Jesus, but he's only healed halfway. He says, I can see people, but they look like trees. Everyone says, oh, yeah, he's only healed part way. Or maybe, maybe he can see better than everybody else, just temporarily, because he can see that people are like trees, as they are throughout the Bible, which is like Israel is like a vineyard and so on. Anyway, so people are like trees. 
People are therefore like the tree-shaped lampstand in the temple. And so the oil that fuels the lampstand maps onto the spirit that burns on the heads of the disciples at Pentecost because the oil is the spirit. So if the oil is the spirit and ointment is a bit like oil and one fly can make the oil go sour, what does that tell you? Anybody listen to this week's podcast? Psalm 51 prompted a question from somebody who attends All Saints. I won't tell you who. Very good question. We say this every week. In fact, we sing it. Psalm 51. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why do we sing that? Apart from the fact that it's in the Bible. Does it not, is it not a prayer that the ointment would not be soured by one fly? Yeah. Or, to put it another way, that the holy anointing of the Spirit that we've received would not be defiled by one act of folly by which we step away from the Lord. And how much would it take? How much folly would you need? A little. A little folly would be enough. So can you start to see there is a significant price tag attached to folly? And there are serious consequences at stake because of the painful reality that our lives can be not just blessed immensely by one chance providential event, but torn apart by one act of foolishness. Think of all the dumb things you could do in 30 seconds. Any of us could do. Some of them would be catastrophic in themselves. Others would be catastrophic because they're the beginning of a road towards something a lot worse. A little folly. And it, it's not that we're standing here denying the preservation of the saints. No. Go and listen to this week's podcast. I'll talk about that. What we're actually saying is that Scripture doesn't hide from us the reality that um, it's those who continue to bear fruit who remain in the vine. And it is by the Spirit who indwells us that we bear that fruit. And so we wake up every morning and we think, right... No folly today. Let's, let's confess that, get it out of the way. Let's, let's have some wisdom. Let's grow in wisdom. And let's seek the Lord's blessing to live like the wise, greater King Solomon. And to keep in step with the Spirit. Not defile him 
by our actions. Okay, it's 18 minutes past eight. So that's the signal for us to finish. I think I'll lead us in prayer. And then if we could um, tidy up, uh, put the chairs and uh, tables and so on in the usual places for the Oaks tomorrow, they would appreciate that very much. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you that this time and chance that happens to us all is within your sovereign purposes. And so watch over us, we pray, in all of those tiny circumstances which are way beyond our control. We confess to you that we have at times called upon your uh, guidance and your wisdom where we have seen big decisions before us, failing to realise that all the time you're upholding us by your kind and gracious hand. Please continue to do so. Spare us from evil and little folly. May we be like this poor wise man who delivered the city by the wisdom that you gave him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Wonderful to see you. Have a great rest of your week and see you soon. today? You've been working today? Yes. Great, great. Just turn this off before I forget.